0: Good morning, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Kareem Kanji. I am your host, and happy to be so. Before we get to today's episode, just a reminder, you can find this podcast and all the other 200 plus episodes on my website, which is kareemkanji.com, where you can listen to all of them, and uh, you can also listen to this podcast wherever it is that you subscribe to podcasts. And if you do, please rate and review if it is possible. It helps uh, get this podcast found. It helps other people find this podcast. It helps us climb whatever charts are available. And uh, one day it'll help bring in some money through sponsorship. We could all have 2021 goals. Let's get on with the show. Today's guest is the author of the brand new book, Hockey's Hot Stove the untold stories of the original insiders. Al Strachan joins me just now. For those of you who don't know, Al is a journalist and a former sports columnist for the Toronto Sun, the Globe and Mail, and Montreal Gazette. He is the best-selling author of six other books on hockey, most notably Why the Leafs Suck. Uh, Strachan was a regular panelist on Hockey Night Canada, Uh, the score as well as the satellite hot stove. He is also a member of the media section of the Hockey Hall of Fame here in Toronto. Please enjoy this conversation between me and Al Strachan. the famed
1: Lime Shirt. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is sort of limey. <laughs> well,
0: so, who was it, Christy, who was it that has an issue with your Lime Green Shirts?
1: Oh, everybody. <laughs> yeah, or? Blatch, yeah, Blatch did, yeah. Well, Blatch had issues with all my clothes pretty well, <laughs> and and also the way I talked, and pretty much the way I ate, and everything else in my life, <laughs> but, <no. laughs> We had a, we had a good time together, but... <laughs>
0: is this is this uh, is this like a calling card of yours? The the lime shirts?
1: No, I just uh, I'd had on a kind of a grubby shirt, and I thought, well, I better put on a different one. And I just went up and grabbed a sort of a. I got a whole rack of golf shirts because I golf pretty well every day, so yeah. I just picked out a brighter one. That's all. There you are. There oh, there no special are. reason for the green.
0: Well, well, listen, I prepared for lime green.
1: Oh, did my you? <laughs> With my lime green
0: pillowcase.
1: (laughs) All right, I've I've got a Pittsburgh Steelers pillowcase. I can show you if you want.
0: (laughs) Nice. That that is perfect. That is perfect. Um, Al, I have you scheduled for up to an hour. Okay. Um, If we happen to go down a thousand rabbit holes and we talk for an hour, is that okay with you?
1: Yeah. Sure. Why not? Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. can I have a beer while we're doing it?
0: Absolutely.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. For sure. I used to. <laughs> All right. So when I started this version of the podcast, I started in a bar in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Uh, that no longer exists. It was on uh, King. And oh, my goodness. It was near George Brown. Uh, but it was called the Pacific Junction Hotel. Okay. And it was a bar. Uh, and they had a small little studio inside the bar and so all my guests had their beer of choice sometimes uh they would choose a wine uh but they, yeah so uh, uh i'm very used to my guests having okay. uh, a, a nice cold beverage
1: so is that down the road from where betty's is now
0: right beside betty's okay so uh, so pacific junction is same it used to be the same ownership group okay but uh, Pacific Junction is no longer there. They closed. I want to say going on two, two and a half years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is when they well, is when they shut
1: down. I've probably been in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was uh, when I was uh, my younger son was growing up in England, and I was over there, and we were in a town called Fleetwood, and my wife and he and I were driving along one day, and I said, you know. I think that's the only pub in Fleetwood I haven't been in. He said, it's probably the only pub in England you haven't been in. <laughs> and he was about seven years old at the time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but he's very witty. Still is witty. Now he's in his 30s and a computer geek in uh, Boston. Ah,
0: do, doing, doing well for, he you for us. He snowed in, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, which is, uh, my, my brother, I was so I was born in England sure. myself.
1: Okay. But my, my brother. I, sorry? Whereabouts?
0: A Sidcup.
1: Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that's in Yorkshire,
0: right? I saw. To be honest with you, I don't know. I was a baby when we when we came here as refugees, but right. um, my my brother actually lived in Basingstoke. Okay. Uh, for I don't know five, six, seven years, uh, and he said there, it's like families will go to the pub. It's like you know, it's not you don't get carted. You'll have a family there with a baby in the straw. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, so it's absolutely uh, like, yeah. My my other son still lives in uh, in London, just south of the Thames, out near Woolwich Armory. And uh, he's got a, what would they be now, nine and six, I guess. Nice. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we've been going in there as long as those kids have been born and yeah. uh, going with the stroller. And yeah, and uh, the younger one picks out her uh, ACDC record on the jukebox. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> kids so, yeah, got class. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different approach you know, it, it is a public house. It's not yes, it's like a bar, you know, it's a different thing altogether. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, I, I might've skipped over it when I was reading your book, but are
1: you from England yourself? Is your family? I was born there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, I think I, I mentioned in there that when my wife and I split up, yes, he wanted to live in England because that's where my family is. And we used to go over every year and yeah. she got along well with my family and knew them well, and, and she felt oh, wow. more at home there. And uh, that's where she is to this day. And um, I just finished communicating with her a little. We talk many a day via email, sometimes on Messenger. She's still a good friend, and she still edits everything I write. Yeah, what
0: a fantastic relationship to have. When I
1: when oh, I was reading
0: that, I go, that's wild. That's
1: wild. Yeah. And Lucy and I have been together for about 22 years. And oh, wow. she knows Marion, talks to her on the phone. We've even been on vacation together. <laughs> so it's it's very good. But we just treated it like adults. We didn't hate each other. We just had gone different ways, you yeah. know, as you, as you would over sure. 25 years. And, uh, so we just I just said, where do you want to go? And she, we looked at Kingston. That's where it comes up in the book. I was We were looking at houses in Kingston when Gretzky got uh, moved from uh, LA to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And then shortly thereafter, a few days later, as a matter of fact, she said, I'd rather go to England. So we went to England and uh, bought a house there that she is still in and couldn't get in right away. So one of my cousins, one of the Many over there that she knows owns a nursing home, so for three months, (laughs) she and my younger son, (laughs) the one who was six or seven years old or whatever, lived in a nursing home. So (laughs) the
0: jokes, Al, the jokes that just come out of that putting your ex-wife in a nursing home. (laughs)
1: Yeah, lived in a nursing home. That's that's hilarious. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Yes. Yes. I just uh, finished all my stuff, so I'm gonna have some water. All right. But cheers, Al. Al, first of all, congratulations on Here. the uh, on the book. Uh, some fun reads in there. Some very insightful uh, reads in there. It's uh, well, you've
1: got uh, something that I haven't, namely that book. Because uh, by the time they delivered it, we missed by about a day leaving Canada to come to Florida, and the books were delivered in Canada. So now. Obviously, that's where they're staying for a while. I don't have any copies of it. you know what You're the second uh
0: author that I've spoken to in the past few weeks that doesn't own their own book. Yeah. <laughs> I was speaking with uh with James dutty at t s n oh yeah, You're a good guy and yeah, and I, and I had his book, and so I did the same thing that i that I'm doing with yours you know showing at the screen saying great book, he goes, "Oh, okay, so you have one I don't have." one.
1: Yeah, and some of the people I talked to uh, on the interviews, Sirius being a perfect example. There's three guys over there we sent books to her at Sirius XM, yes, and they don't have them because they went into the office and they can't get into the office.
0: Ah, yes, that's true.
1: It's a different world we live in at the moment. I'm afraid it is
0: very different. It is very, very different. Um, well, let's 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 talk uh, a little bit about this. It's it's interesting because I remember when the show started. Um, well, I don't remember the day or anything, but I remember there being this new second period show uh, that came on that I enjoyed much more than uh, than uh, than Coach's Corner um, because it was it was just different. It was it it felt as I started watching it um, that I was getting like an inside look into the NHL. That wasn't available anywhere else, maybe it was maybe it was in the newspapers in some column, Not but really. it seemed to me that that this was the show, and I felt I could skip the first period intermission. right <laughs> I could well, skip it was different, yeah, but like for me, it was like, oh, I want to know something that most people don 't know, yeah. right, yeah, because I remember as a kid out watching. I don't know what it was called Molson leaf hockey or, or whatever it was yeah. called. It
1: thing. changed over the years, something like that. Yeah. So
0: many. And I remember in one of the intermissions it was, uh, it was, it would be a hockey player and, and someone else. And they were literally teaching kids different um, strategies of playing hockey. Uh, okay. So I was never a big skater out, but I'd love playing ball hockey. Um, and I would watch that and I was thinking okay, okay. next weekend we'd be gathering the in the school parking lot on a Saturday afternoon. I'm gonna try that
1: defensive move or, or whatever it was. Probably uh, Howie Meeker, who just died a, about a month ago. Yeah. He was in his upper nineties, Howie Meeker and Uh, one of the many uh, legendary hockey people I got to meet in this job because when you do it you do get to meet everybody at all levels of hockey and uh, and many of them great I mean I've sat uh, often before a a game in Montreal with people like Toe Blake and Maurice Richard and John Mm. Beliveau those kind of people because they come to the games and then Howie Meeker used to be uh, part of the hockey night crew for a while and then mm-hmm. he retired and moved out to British Columbia. And for a long time, I used to call him on a regular basis to get his views on what was going on in hockey because he was an excellent observer of the game and often yeah. spoke out against uh, some of the unpleasant things that were going on and uh, and was a good analyst, I you say. So, yeah, that would have been Howie Meeker, I think, at that time.
0: Yeah. T- tell me about... Um... Tell me about Howie Meeker as, as sort of a, um, as an, ad, you know, as someone who, who analyzed the game, had thoughts on the game. Um, you know, pe- people like that are, are. I, it's, I don't want to say the word, you know, I don't want to say dying breed, but, you know, they're far, uh, far and few between, you know, th- there's not many like uh, Howie anymore.
1: No, there aren't. And I think perhaps part of the reason for that is that. The younger generation today isn't really that interested in Mm. that sort of stuff. They like the speed, and there's plenty of it now, and they like the banging, and they they like the excitement. But the tactics don't really interest enough of them Mm. to make it viable Mm -hmm. as a part of a TV broadcast. And I'm not sure it did then either, but it was something that was fairly easy for them to do. And let's face it, some of those between-period shows were pretty inane. Not necessarily the ones with Howie, but, you know, the, the Peter Puck things. And then they had yeah, I remember uh, that. <laughs> hockey around the world. And then they had people, uh, you know, skating around shooting foam rubber targets and things like that. And, uh, you know, a hockey showdown by guys who... You know, we're too old to be on skates. or whatever. It just really didn't add to the thing. It was a good time to go and get yourself a beer or go to the washroom or something. But I think when Shannon, John Shannon, came up with these two concepts of the coach's corner in the first and then the satellite hot stove in the second, that made people who, like you, a lot of people watched more of those between-period shows than the game itself. Yeah. And Usually the ratings for those were better, and um, often the ratings for ours was better than Don's, even though Don was absolutely huge. And there were times, of course, when Don's was better, but they were both up there. And uh, I mentioned in the book that – That's right was the secret because <laughs> oh well we don't, don't don. get, yeah don't tell don. <laughs> don wouldn't care your don gets this bad rap i was just talking to him a couple of days ago by the and he loved the book by the way he absolutely oh, nice. loved it and that's in there that yeah that you know people would say oh don't tell don it'll upset him don's a team player he's played a team sport all his life and you know it was later on when he didn't have a team he he was kind of lost and um I'm, I'm rambling a bit because I know we got no, an hour fine. or more if you want it. So I'm I love, I love,
0: I love, I love the talk.
1: Okay. So yeah. Yeah. In 1988. Um, Don and I had been friends for, for some time, and he had kept saying, uh oh, geez, you know, I'd, I'd I'd like to go to England because his greatest number one star of history is Lord Horatio Nelson, won the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, and he wanted to to see about that sort of stuff." And uh, and he knew that I knew a fair bit about England because, you know, I, I'm not bragging, but just I, I've been I've made that flight over 100 times. And uh, so I, I know England. I still have a son living there and I knew my way around. And, and I'm a, a fan of British naval history as well. So he had been saying, let's go. And uh, I kept saying, uh, you know, Want every so often, every six months or so, say to my wife, you know, Don wants to go to England. and say, you're not going without me, because we went every summer. My wife and I okay. went at least once as well. So we were at Wayne Gretzky's mm-hmm. wedding, and uh, Don was there, and my wife at the time, the one who now lives in England, was there, and, uh, and Don being Don says, why won't you let him go to England with me? <laughs> <laughs> she said he can go if he wants <laughs> we went in the next month <laughs> so so, so i had to arrange everything for him though, to get back to the original point of don being a team player yeah. he'd had everything arranged for him all his life he, he he had no ability to make travel arrangements or to know where to go or whatever wow. uh, because it had always been you know be at the bus at two o'clock and get on it and we'll take care of you from there that sort of thing yeah. So I made the, the travel arrangements for him. I got the hotels, and I had to go out to Heathrow and meet him because he couldn't even be trusted to find his way downtown. <laughs> and he landed at 6 in the morning or something. Oh. You know? so anyway, there he was, uh, all dressed up with his high collar and his tie, getting off the plane. And uh, so uh, we did. We had a great week. And uh, then when uh, he came back, uh, his wife, Rose, who has since died, mm-hmm. uh, was <laughs> – was told that, you know, Rose, I mean, the honeymoon, you know, was wonderful, but this was the best week of my life. (laughs) And he could get away with that stuff, I guess, because Rose was a lovely lady as well. And so he had taken a number of pictures at the time or had people taken pictures. Mm -hmm. And what would happen more than once in London, uh, we'd say to somebody, you know, could you uh, take a picture of us here standing on London Bridge or somewhere sure and so he'd take a picture and the guy say how's blue <laughs> you know, yeah that's it. right yeah you, you know? talk about it in the these, book yeah yeah so these things would happen and uh he took a lot of pictures and at that time he used to do a lot of rowing in his basement he had one of those rowing machines oh yeah and he had put all the pictures up on the wall in front and he'd sit there and row and look at the pictures and remind <laughs> himself of the wonderful time he had in wow. england so so that's a long winded story about how Don is a team guy. Cause that's all he'd ever been. So yeah. he didn't worry if the ratings were a little bit one way or the other. He just wanted a really good show. And uh, I feel he helped provide it and we helped provide it. I think.
0: Yeah. It was interesting when you start off the book saying, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily a tell-all book. You're not here to, to, to necessarily gossip, but you also said, you know, if, if, if you're going to talk about something and it, It pertains to a person. You'll mention their name, uh, and um, you know, because you want to give the full picture. And and uh, and I thought that was, I thought that was a refreshing uh, comment to to sort of make at the beginning of your book. So it's not you know so, you know, it 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 left me with the expectation that, okay, there's going to be stuff in this book, that, you know, is is going to be colorful, yes, but you know, interesting and, and and insightful similar to the the focus of satellite hot stove right was was to give people you know an inside look into the game and the machinery of the game um and so it was very much appreciated how you approached the book in the same way
1: well we tried to do that because that was what made the satellite hot stove successful we were giving people an inside view. It was a a link, as I sometimes say, what, what John Shannon wanted between the viewer and the viewed, and to make people feel that they were part of this conversation, more or less, that concept of the four squares was innovative and it wasn't done anywhere nowadays it's pretty common you see it in movies and everything espn tsn they all do it but nobody had done it up to that point and there were a lot of logistical problems getting it done but but john shannon who had created all this stuff got it done and to have four people like that and talking about you know the the three who were supposed to be talking and ron who kept sticking his nose in when he shouldn't have been he had eight minutes so people were trying to fire out those little things that they'd worked on because everybody worked hard to bring in information and generally we had more than we were able to get to and you it went uh, there were probably good things in there that nobody ever found out about because you couldn't keep them for a week yeah uh, that was not the way it went and uh, or it might have come out during the week or whatever and we everybody had a certain amount of time and you wanted that to make the most of your time, so you gave them good stuff. And uh, in the book, I sort of make fun of Eric the for for being yeah. a bit slow sometimes. And Eric's a very, very good friend as well. And uh, he saw that before it went in and he just laughs. He knows, he agrees, you know, that at the beginning, boy, you know, when we were taping in the afternoon, we kept having to go back over it two or three times. Or so we start with, Eric's first crack, and would be going on and on and on and on. So John Shannon used that line that he has in the book there. it says, Eric, I'm I'm just asking you the time. I don't want you to build me a watch. And, uh, <laughs> and we'd start over again. And, and Eric now admits, yeah, because he was used to being on radio. He'd never really been on TV before to any meaningful level. And so he couldn't go on like we're doing here with this kind of that's right um, you know and the, you have to get in give your stuff and get out and because we all had so much stuff there was a lot of good information on on those eight minutes on a saturday night yeah well i
0: wanted to ask you about that um because you know like you said i'm used to this let's sit down let's have a beer and let's and let's talk uh you know and, and, and don't worry about what the time is Um, and so I was used to that. And so a couple of years ago, Al, uh, I got invited to fill in for, for, uh, for a few guests on, on CFRB. They have the, the morning, um, round table, you know, it's, it's like, it's an eight or 10 minute slot and they want to cover five topics. Okay. And I just found after my first appearance there, you know, there's three or four other people there and it's like rapid fire. And you got to be quick. You can't, you know, make a watch. Like you said, you got to tell the time. No. Um, and I left my first appearance on there in my heart. As I was walking down the street <laughs> to the bus station, it was racing. And I go, oh, man, that was a weird experience. So I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you came from the newspaper space, right? Yeah. Um, we're used to, you know, sitting down with your thoughts uh, and taking the time to write down, you know, to make sure it made sense and concise. And then you go into a place where it's an eight minutes for four people to get in their, you know, their, their hits. Yeah. How big of a change in, in sort of thinking was that for you?
1: Not overly, there was an evolution in that process over the years because you're talking about sitting down and having time to write a column. Yeah, that's, that's true when it's not a game day, but if you're doing a game column, you've got to have a column finished. By the time the game finishes, and wow. it's not the best column, then you go downstairs and you get quotes and you come back and and you rewrite it. But again, you've got another deadline on that, and and so you have to put that together quickly and have those thoughts cohesively and get them all into print so that they make sense. So that is a challenge, and that gets mm. you into that shape. Plus, there's also in the case of any big city journalist these days, sports journalist, occasional appearances on television here and there—you're called in to comment upon something that's happened, or once in a while, the guest in a show or something like that. So I'd done a fair bit of TV hits for uh, all, all kinds of people along the way. You know, I—I've been on Score and TSN, CTV, Sportsnet, pretty well every show that was there. You'd go on at some point, and then this one became more of the focal point later on, but I'd done a a fair bit of TV, just not every Saturday without failing. Why this book now? I was going to do a book on, well, the the short version really is that, as just a hint in life, if you intend to retire, yes, either abuse your agent so badly that he'll never talk to you again or shoot him. Because if you don't do one of those two things, he will pester you to do more work, even though you tried to make the point that you've retired. So this agent (laughs) came to me and he said, oh, I've got this great deal for you. He said, Simon and Schuster people, you're a good friend of Scott Bowman's, right? I said, yeah, we're good friends. He's, you know, over to the house and stuff like that. And we started off, you know, just as a journalist. type, remember evolved into friends, and I, I know his wife, Suella, and all. yeah, yeah. He said, well, Simon and Schuster, think of a good idea if you wrote a book about the evolution of your relationship with Scott Bowman, how you just started out purely professionally and got to know each other more and more and everything. And uh, so we met with the Simon and Schuster people, and I said, well, I'll do it, but only on one condition. Like Scotty has to agree to cooperate. Because I know that in the past there have been a couple of books about him, and he wasn't happy about that. And I know that he's working on a book with Kenny Dryden, and he's already spent almost three years on it. You know, with probably anybody but Kenny Dryden, it had been done in two months. But it's up to the three-year mark now, and I'm not sure that he'll want to do it. But if he'll do it, then I will. So I got in touch with Scott, and uh, he didn't want to do it. He oh, said, so he said you know you can do it if you want he said nothing i can do it to stop you and i said well scott you don't want to do it and it's supposed to be how we're friends <laughs> i'm like, gonna do it when you want me to do it right <laughs> so I said, never mind we're best buddies <laughs> but he didn't want to cooperate <laughs> yeah and and i understand because you know the book uh that dryden did with him came out not long after it's been out what well, about three four months now mm-hmm. and uh getting yeah. um I haven't read it myself yet for the same reason that I haven't been in Canada that much anywhere near a bookstore where I live in New Brunswick. The nearest bookstore is an hour and a half drive away. So, wow. Uh, Anyway, uh, I understand. Knowing Kenny, it'll be uh, well documented. It'll be well done and it'll be clean as to whether it'll be really interesting. I imagine the stuff that is coming directly from Scotty will. But Kenny can drone a bit but it's probably <laughs> worth reading. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I intend to get it because, yeah. you know, if you get Scott Bowman doing one of these things, and we almost did one. Uh, I'm I'm wondering again here. That's okay. Um, but six years ago or so, the strangest thing, we were together somewhere and um, he said, uh, I've got this guy who... Wants to do a book with me, I said, "Oh, okay." And he said, "He's an agent, and he says that he's got a writer to do it." I said, "Oh, okay, yeah." He said, "But I told him, I'm not going to do a book unless you write it." He said, "Would you write it?" I said, "Sure. I've been pestering you for 20 years to write, it. <laughs> of course <I'll> write it, <laughs> you know." And I said, "You couldn't I know what's holding you back over the years is that you just don't want to embarrass anybody in your profession. And that's it because, you know, as Scott Bowman says, for instance, well, here's how we won this crucial playoff game against say Don Cherry, for example, that Mm -hmm. I put these guys together with a lineup. And I knew that we'd take the face off on the right-hand side at a left-hand shot and put him over here. And we scored the winning goal that way. You're embarrassing Don Cherry in your mind. Yeah. And and Scott wouldn't want to do that. And huh. there'd be thousands of examples of that. And that's why he would never want to do one of these books, I think. I think that was my interpretation. That's what I told him. I said, so why don't you just do a book like the one that I did with Don Cherry? Don Cherry's Hockey Stories and Stuff, which, by yeah. the way, is still the biggest selling book in history by a Canadian author, uh, Don Cherry. Right. And uh, so you can just pink these little stories here and there wherever you want, just stories about things that happened to you. You don't, it's not a biography or anything. And he said, Oh no, no. He said, I've got the idea. And he said, "Uh, nine chapters for nine Stanley cups. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So he had this idea and then it went back to the publishers and this agent for this other guy and everything. And it just, it just, all collapse. so scotty and i have talked about doing books before and then he ended up doing this one with kenny which i, I think will probably be quite a good book because scotty's insights are just yeah. unreal he's in another world when it comes to hockey he's just got a phenomenal mind nobody knows the game like this guy and you know you run into people who say well you know look at the good players he had How <laughs> what do you think they got that way you know, how many people come into the hockey with a lot of talent and don't become stars? And mm-hmm. he forced these people to become stars. And one of his favorite tricks I've probably mentioned here is so he'd, he'd go to a star. He did this with with Mario Lemieux, with Eiserman, with Guy Lafleur. And he'll say, oh, what do you want? What do you need? Well, Lemieux didn't want to tie his own skates. Uh, Lafleur didn't. Want to be pestered about what time he got in at night because he always used to go out by himself and sit at the end of the bar and drink shots and stuff like that. And Eiseman's <laughs> a little bit weird. Yeah. But, anyways, okay. You want it? You got it. You, you want to fly charter? You'll fly charter. You want to, you want to room by yourself in a suite? You got to room yourself. And now, after you've got all this, what's your excuse if you're not the best player in the world?
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. <laughs> and so these guys. They had no excuses left. They had to use all their talent. It had to be put on display. And that's what he did with these guys. And and then with the, the lesser lights, he put them in certain roles, and they had to fulfill those roles, all of which were basically in support of the other people. There was a very strict structure. And there was a very strict structure as far as payroll is concerned as well. It started off with Sam Pollock in the Montreal days. And if you didn't want to accept it, well, there were other teams you could play for. And uh, and if you didn't like playing for Sam and you went in and told him you wanted to be traded and say okay yeah thank you and that was there was absolutely nothing followed that but if you went in a second time and yeah. said I want to be traded you might as well pack your bags because you were on your way and but he, so Sam had all these rules and Scotty learned all this stuff from Sam and he has passed it on to so many people throughout hockey and he has such fantastic hockey knowledge that i'm sure this will book will be extremely worthwhile to just just for scotty's stuff alone so to get way back to the original question so so i wasn't going to do that so the uh simon and schuster people said well how about if you do a book about the hot stove because it's there's still so much interest in it even though it's been gone for years uh, there's all kinds of comments on Twitter about it all the time. People are always suggesting it should be brought back. and, and But we don't want a book just about hot stove. You know, this is not a documentary. We want it to be entwined with your life as a journalist and your evolution just the same way as it would have been in the Scott Bowman story. Yeah, And the guy who runs Simon & Schuster, has said, he said, I want this to be a sports book unlike any other sports book. And so it does mingle the two. And so this time I said, I'll do it if John Shannon will cooperate. And John yes. Shannon more than cooperated. he's He's been very good with me, gave me everything that I needed, spent a lot of time with me. And uh, I think as a result of that, it's a much better book because... The whole thing was john shannon's creation I mean, before john shannon took over at hockey night we had one game a week starting at eight o'clock and then john came in and said, let's do two games and if we can do two we'll start one at seven we'll start one at in the west at ten and every week there'll be one in the east at seven one in the west at ten and we've got don cherry in the first intermission and people might stop watching maybe after the second period if it's not that good so let's put something in there that'll guarantee people sticking around will make them want to oh. stay to watch that second intermission not people shooting styrofoam targets and that's <laughs> what he did he created a satellite hot stove and then now you got people sticking around for the third period and then the idea is that there's a quick jump right into the next game and maybe a very brief intermission with Ron or Don or something. And you go right into that. And now you got these people watching the four periods of hockey. And the six hours of hockey that was on CBC brought in more than half of the network's revenue for the entire week. That is
0: cr- I didn't know that was a Jon Stewart uh, – um- that back to back game was a John was was a John Shannon, Shannon. Thing, sorry
1: yeah John Shannon yeah. Thing. that was that was John wow. yeah and uh and obviously you know we're still enjoying that to these days and and then the second intermission got to be so popular that these guys in the West insisted that their pregame skate be keyed to that so that they could be finished and off the ice watch the second intermission (laughs) they all wanted to see that out in the west and then they could go back on just for the beginning of the game so it it became quite fun
0: was that to see if uh, you were going to drop any hints if there were if if certain players were going to be traded or
1: (laughs) the the, uh, universal currency in hockey in the NHL is gossip these people have Afternoons off, they have a life where they, in many cases, can't just go and hang out in places, depending upon the city that they they play in. And so they often sit around the house and they get on the phone and they talk to each other and uh, they want to know what's going on. And so the gossip is interesting very very important to them and they want to hear what's going on everywhere and then they can talk about it if they haven't already heard it or in some cases provided it <laughs> you know and, uh, and and you could in those days we would after games or the night before or whatever go out into the bars with these guys and chat and have drinks and sometimes dinner and stuff and you'd hear all kinds of really really good stuff Wow! really good stuff and you you the general rule as i mentioned before in one of the other books or something said or maybe even this one there were three categories there was stuff that you could not use there was stuff you could use but it was not for attribution you didn't get it from me that sort of Mm -hmm. thing and then there was stuff yeah go ahead i don't care if they know i said that yeah and um But stuff in that category we rarely bothered uh naming the person anyway because you know what was to be gained by it yeah if if a player said something about well you know this guy over he's always sticking people and we're you know we're watching him and we're we're gonna we're gonna get him at some whatever something like that why would you put this guy's name on it all this does is make this guy a target for somebody or give him a reputation within team management as somebody who speaks too much to the media, gives them too much information because, you know, I've, there have been cases. Uh, Gary Suter, for instance, in Calgary comes to mind right away. Gary Suter used to, uh, he told us, he said, I lay awake at night thinking of what to say to you guys in the morning. Because I know you're going to ask me about certain things, and I want some good answers. You know, I want to be funny or what. I want to be some, so I really work hard. Sometimes I, you know, I can't get to sleep because I'm thinking of what I'm going to tell you guys in the morning. Got the call from management, Gary. We don't do this. You don't need to spend any time talking to those people any more than is absolutely necessary so so to my mind there was no sense even if the guy said yeah you can put my name on it he didn't bother anyway but we'd use yeah. the stuff and then the other stuff that wasn't you know not for attribution did use and that third category the one that no you, you cannot use this that's the stuff that's the gossip you trade with somebody else another hockey player and say did you know that Oh, no, I didn't know that, but here, did you know this? <laughs> and, oh. Yeah, so that was, so the that those nights in the bar with all these guys, they were very good, but, you know, but we wouldn't ever burn it. The other reason you could get away with this, because guys knew when they were with people like me, and presumably Eric, and that, they could say all these things, because tell me everything they wanted to tell me, and they knew that it was safe. I, I wasn't going to embarrass them i wasn't going to make it public unless they wanted it made public and um they they didn't have to say this is not the record eh because they knew that i had enough common sense not to use stuff that would get them in trouble i remember yeah. talking one day i'm talking to brad mccrimmon and and they got some rookie there so i asked brad a very pointed question brad was very good and this kid said. You better be careful not to answer that. You know what he's asking you? What he's got? Brad says, "All right, <laughs> you'll go you'll go sharpen your stick or something," <laughs> you know, because uh, they knew that I knew what you could use and what you should use and what you didn't use. And and huh. I'm not blowing my own horn any more than anybody else. J.D. was in the same boat, and, and Eric Dachachek and and Pierre Lebrun, and they, you try and get as much out as you can, but you're not going to burn anybody because you burn them you're done like it's like a bank account you know you want to you got a hundred dollars in the bank account you take all 100 out one day nice big splash you're not going to get any interest anymore you leave the hundred in there and you know you get a couple of dollars here a couple of dollars there a couple of, you know it's a over the time and everything
0: yeah that's so, so that true it work. that answers my next question because i was going to ask you like how do you how do you determine what you can and cannot use but that that answers it uh right yeah. there absolutely
1: experience is a short yeah version you know? yeah.
0: Did you, did you, was it something you innately knew or did you sort of no, burn, burn I, someone once and then you learned to yeah, listen? Yeah,
1: yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I think everybody did. Um, the first uh, trip I made out to uh, Los Angeles um, because of the uh, time differences and the flying time and all that sort of stuff. And we'd already missed a skate and I didn't really have much to write. i was pretty sure, you know, they would want something. And um uh, Rogi Vachon had been with the Canadien, and they'd gone out there, and, and I was with a couple of the French writers, and uh, Rogi Vachon and these two guys and myself went for lunch, and Rogie started telling some hockey stories about how uh, he would get to play certain nights because somebody like, I think it was Tony Esposito at the time, didn't want to face somebody's wicked shot or something like that or maybe somebody didn't want to face whoever one of the other goal so he got put in there well you know he did not mean that to be public and and I should have known better and uh, uh and I it was made very clear to me <laughs> that this was a lapse in judgment on your part <laughs> and uh, wow and, and so you, you learn. It's like anything else. You, you make a mistake and you learn from it in life and you don't do it again you know, if you got any brains. Interesting. That's really interesting. What... Um,
0: obviously, you know, the, the, the big job... Outside, outside, obviously, the show needs to be entertaining. Uh, yeah. But, you know, outside of that, the show is really about sort of the in, inside look and scoops and, um, you know, like you said, the gossip. When, when the internet came along, you know, it's people started going there and, you know, people started, you know, putting up blogs and, you know, you could sort of get information at your fingertips. How did that impact the show?
1: Killed it. Really, eh? Pretty well, yeah.
0: Because yeah.
1: nowadays, uh, you know, you as you say, stuff gets out pretty quickly. And with the advent of blogs, now you get into a thing where something gets screwed up for the usual one word reason that things are always screwed up in life. That would be lawyers. You get one oh, yeah. guy who says, I got my phone here and I've got a blog. You may never have read it. Probably very few people have. But sure. I want access to the dressing room. And and they, at first they say, no, you can't. And then, of course, then well, you'll hear from my lawyer who says that I have as much right because of the freedom of the press, Second Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, as anybody else to be in this dressing room. So then, next thing you know, and this is what exists now today, a whole bunch of people with cell phones and alleged blogs go into the room. Mm. And so instead of being a writer, an accredited writer who's in there working for one of the larger papers or hockey news or one of the larger tv stations or whatever going in there and the players know him and he's over there and he's over there and you talk to him and you get your stuff now nobody comes out of the back where the players dress until the pr guy brings one person out and then people holding out their cell phones dash like lemmings to surround this guy and there'll be three or four questions and uh then the PR guy said, well, that's enough, last question, and the guy will disappear. And in the meantime, the guy has said that he's got to take away their time and space and that this is a couple of tough games coming up and they're pleased with what they've been doing and on and on and on and contributed absolutely nothing. And uh, and that's so that's one of the reasons, the, the blog's definitely doing that. And then, of course, there's also just the advent of technology in the sense that, as I said, we used to go out to the pub uh, with the players but now the players are afraid to do that because somebody some girl may come running up and plant a kiss on the guy and take a picture and off they go and there have been a lot of cases like that in england especially with the Premier league soccer players uh, people set them up for things and uh and so People don't the players don't want to go into these public places anymore. And again, that's because of the internet, because that picture can be around the world before they get out the door. Yeah. And uh and I guess as well as plus the exchange of information. I've I've known a few people whose names I won't mention, who were fairly successful um sports writers in earlier days because they were able to steal stuff from other papers. Yeah. If you got a friend in Vancouver who will tell you what's in the Vancouver paper and you can put it in the Toronto paper, who's gonna know except maybe the 60 people who made that flight that day, if they read that paper. Mm, but now of course, it's all there. And so you can't do that. You can't do so, that anymore. Yep. Yeah, so I'm not sure you could, you could do a hot stove. And, and people ask me that and, and generally I say no but I do have some ideas as to how you could maybe do it, but yet it would take a lot of work yes. and it would take some very uh, talented people, talented in the sense of experienced and uh, you you couldn't bring in some young people to do it. I think, and I, I've, never, I've never put this opinion anywhere in print or any of these interviews before, but if I were doing it today if they said can you do it I would say well I've got to have a decent sized budget because I've got to go around and have dinners with the the top agents in the game for starters and the general managers and some of the other prime movers some of maybe the equipment people or whatever and something like you're going to have to really basically bribe a whole segment of the hockey community and in a way that's what we used to do <clears throat> excuse me we did it with gossip you yeah. to do it this
0: way. interesting i remember um and i miss him on the radio bob mccowan oh yeah um famously did not like having athletes like current playing athletes on his show and, and the reason no. he did and I was always curious about that and I never realized it anyways, because he would just have just amazing people, uh, on his show. But, um, he, he once said, cause they give the same sort of answers, right. Where it's, you know, gotta, gotta, gotta play full 60 minutes or, yeah. you know, got you know, and it's, it was like, you're not going to get any, get anything colorful, um, out of them. um, and so I'm curious if it sort of relates to all of these things we've been talking about in terms of PR controlling what they say, um, you know, don't talk to certain people anymore, that sort of thing. And, and, and again, the, the advent of all this media all over the place.
1: Well, uh, it's a change, which you can't ever forget in, in all this discussion of, of my book and all the things we're doing, that we're talking here basically about a 40-year span. And there have been tremendous changes in technology and in people's approach to things over those years. So you can't look at something 20 years ago and say, well, Hmm. what do you think about this? I think in McCowan's case, the reason, and he probably will not like me saying this, is he didn't invite players on is because he didn't know what to ask them. Hmm. Um, And he had uh, a very good show and he was very good at what he did. So in a sense, that's a criticism of him. But it really is. It's just the reality. You can only spend so many hours a day on your job. And if you're running that kind of show, which I think was, was it three hours, that show? Certainly two at least. Anyway, three. And you've got other people coming in. And and you're going to talk about the games in general and the developments. You've got a fair amount of work there. To then go out and actually go to a game and talk to players afterwards and stay in the bar with them until 1 in the morning, it's too much to ask. So, uh, no, he he wouldn't get good answers to his questions, and there's a reason for that. You only get good answers to good questions. and Bob wasn't in a position to give them good questions. You you can't just go to a guy and say, you know, what happened on that power play goal? you have to be able to say, did you know that he was there and that that little corner over there was available? And were you actually trying for that? Or were you you know, lucky or, you know, you have to know the nuances and the little things and, and Bob wouldn't know those things. So, mm-hmm. so he was really just covering his ass and I'm not blaming him for doing that. He had to do a certain kind of show and he did it very well, but yeah. he couldn't then also do the other one where you get into athletes in depth because he wouldn't know what to ask them
0: that's interesting uh a name pops up throughout uh in in the middle of the book but at the end you you talk about Cherylina jack um i've had the good fortune of of speaking with him uh on 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 this podcast
1: yeah you think that's a good fortune
0: Great. I think so. <laughs> now, I know the type of relationship you have with him. Yeah, right?
1: so, yeah he'd be disappointed if I didn't say something like that. <laughs> but but
0: he, he's not a name. No. You know, like John Shannon, for example, John Shannon, like his name, whether you're a passing hockey fan or yeah. you watch religiously and you follow and, and you're listening to all the radio shows and TV, you know John Shannon. You could do the same thing and never hear the name Shirley Jack. No. Um, but he seems to me, um, that, that he's a pretty important, has been a pretty important player in, in, in hockey in Canada.
1: Yeah. Eminence so, Grise, as they would say in French, you know, like the, the, uh, the gray soul that hangs around behind and controls things. But he is out front, you, you know, you look, he's the one who's got the title of whatever he's got the title of now i don't think his title anymore is executive producer i think it has been at times and i I don't know what they call him now but yeah he's the guy that really runs the show and he is uh interesting to deal with we just insult each other (laughs) at every opportunity and uh and and, you know that part is in the book there you know yeah called him up and what is it that he said as soon as he answers the phone oh you still alive something like that you know and (laughs) and and how are you feeling not that i care but i have to ask yeah and that's the way that we talk to each other and we laugh and uh he tried to protect me um when scott moore wouldn't scott moore and his friend brian burke didn't want me in there because of Various reasons because I criticized their beloved maple leaves in a book. And uh, so uh, I had been fired for one reason other than Sh- and Shirelli said, Look, you, you know, you, you got to bring him back. Like, you need that kind of grit in there, somebody who's going to upset people. And uh, I mean, I, I'm under no illusions about my role there. I wasn't there to make people happy or to be loved. I was, as Eric. The check puts it, you were the guy who wore the black hat. And <laughs> it was my job to uh aggravate people a little bit and to be smug and roll my eyes and smirk and stuff like that. And you need somebody like that to get people talking about the show. I and mean, you still have to have all the other content, but you need something as well. And 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 that's what Shirley wanted and he got them to bring me back. And uh and then uh they didn't they being Burke I guess and Moore didn't want me there mm. because I wrote a book called Why the Leafs Suck uh, you know there was nothing in that book that wasn't pretty self-evident The all these stories about the stupid things that the Leafs had done over the years had all been in the newspapers over the years yeah and many of them in my own columns and uh all the the 21 pages or so pointing out that Brian Burke is not what Brian Burke says he is. were all accurate and if they weren't, I'd have been facing a number of lawsuits because we all know how litigious he is. And then it went on to say what they should do because the full title was why the Leafs suck and how they can be changed. And so I spelled out how they can be changed and that's exactly what they did, I said, you can only spend so much money on players because Gary's mandated that to make sure the owners get a nice profit as a salary cap, but spend the maximum and then you take care of what is your greatest asset and the least greatest asset is money. The richest team in the league, they got more (laughs) money than anybody. So even though you can only spend a certain amount of players on players, there's no limit whatsoever to what you spend everywhere else on cushy flights, on nice uh, trainers, on equipment and scouting staffs and private jets for Shanahan and all these other things. Go ahead, spend it all, and and just make the most of it. And that's exactly what they've done. Yeah. So uh, there was really no reason except that Ryan Burt got upset. But but Burt wouldn't come on the same floor I was on either you know, Shirley would come on and say something. I you want to go back up and hang around in my office for a while or something? I said, well, I'm quite comfortable here having the free meal. Thanks. No, no. He says, you got to get off this floor. Burke's coming, and Burke won't go on the same floor as you, Mr. Tough guy. So, uh,
0: <laughs> it's well, interesting I, how, how you're there. There's, um, you befriended a lot of people, you yeah. know, Scotty Bowman, um, how how we make it to, but you know so on and so forth, um, and then there's others like you know like like the Howard Burgers or the the Brian Burks, um, uh, that that you know, you rubbed the wrong way, or they took things you know instead of professionally, maybe they took it personally, right?
1: Um, yeah, well, there are different reasons. I mean, Burger yeah. is just uh, Burger just said a lot of things that weren't true. I mean, he said one time that. Uh, I had gone into the office at the, I I think it was the Hockey News, and I was crying because I hadn't been put on their list of most influential people. Well, A, I couldn't care less about their list. I mean, what that newspaper thinks about me is totally irrelevant. What the Hockey Night Canada people think about me might be, I couldn't care less about being on somebody's stupid list. And secondly, anybody who knows me saying if I am really pissed off at them, I'm not going to go in and cry. I'm going to go in and scream at them. That's, that's <laughs> my nature. Yeah. So to put something like that in whatever stupid column he had or some notebook or something, that was the kind of thing that that turned me against Berger. And then I know that he also made up a couple of other stories that, uh, that didn't involve me, but I know the people who were involved. And I know that he was absolutely, totally, 100% wrong. So that was the problem there. Now With Burke, it was, he got mad at me because, and uh, this is in the book, I might have been set up for this because there was a player who two general managers told me was available on Burke's team. One GM in the East and one GM in the West both of whom are very good friends, both of whom I've consumed many beers with. Yeah. In fact, one of them, the last time we spoke, said he was going to come and visit me in Florida. And he said, I'll buy the first 48. After that, you're on your own. So... <laughs> so he said now these guys are are typical hockey people you know they love those kind of practical jokes and stuff that they do and everything and they may well have agreed to do this and then i said this thing on tv as brendan morrison actually was the player in question burke went absolutely ballistic and screaming and yelling and that's what what started it all. and then we they got they wanted to get him on tv because naturally he wants to be on tv i mean as i said before i no matter how dangerous any neighborhood or place in the world may be, there's nothing more dangerous, no more dangerous place than between Brian Burke and a working TV camera, because you're going to (laughs) get pulled over. So he wanted to come on, and and we uh, exchanged a few insults, and he said, hardly any of your stories are right. I said, whatever my percentage is, it's better than your playoff percentage, which is zero. And, uh, Uh. And so... When you say things like that on national TV to people, it it does not really help to produce a, a loving relationship subsequently. But the show drove the ratings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know you, you're gonna have people who get mad at you, and yeah. and I always accepted that. And you know an, another story that I don't know if I mentioned in the book or not, but it affects what's just been happening lately. Pierre Lacroix died last Sunday, I think it was. Mm. And for the last many years of his life, Pierre Lacroix absolutely refused to talk to me. I could have been a fire hydrant standing there for all Pierre Lacroix cared. He would not talk to me under any circumstances. And and many times we were together in an elevator or something because Colorado was winning Stanley Cups and he was the general manager, but, he would not talk to me. And the reason for that was that I had said on television on on satellite hostel something that was true. I said that Colorado Avalanche held a players only team meeting, but they wouldn't allow Eric Lacroix, Pierre's son who was playing for the team and was a player, to take part in it because they didn't trust him. And it was true. Wow. It made it made Pierre's wife cry apparently. So Pierre then did what all the general managers do, and that's call JD on Monday morning and shout at JD. <laughs> but he never talked to me again after that. But I held no malice towards Pierre Lacroix because that, that, that's fine. Pierre Lacroix didn't try and do anything to hurt me subsequently. Yeah. He just refused to deal with me. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. You know You don't like what I said. It was true. And... Uh, OK, then we just don't talk to you. But he didn't run around trying to get me fired. He didn't go telling everybody that, you know, mm. I was a pedophile or something. You know, he, he just refused to talk to you. And that's fine. So, so I felt badly when when uh, Pierre Lacroix died. There are some people in hockey that I wouldn't feel badly about the same way. But uh, he, he was a capable man. And uh, he did a very good job out there. And the players enjoyed playing for him and uh he was as far as i know he treated players fairly and so um so there are two ways to treat people with whom you have a disagreement there you go pierre lacroix way and the wrong way that's that's
0: very that's very insightful and then your way of sort of reacting to that okay he's not going to talk to me no big deal oh but you don't have to hate him back
1: you know it's it's fine you know so that 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 speaks volumes um yeah, well you know the when you're gonna do a show like this you you understand or you should understand that not everybody is gonna like you. They, yes. you there's you know a million somewhere between one and two million each week watching it a lot of them are gonna hate you and a lot of them are gonna like you you can't get upset because people yeah. are gonna like you it's like you know mike milbury says in the book you gotta have a thick crust and you do you just say okay well for sure you know, just don't try and shoot me or harm my family and think what you want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you one last question, Al, before we wrap it up. Okay. Um,
1: is this a zinger, like you've waited this? This is.
0: I've been waiting for this. This is a gotcha, <laughs> gotcha question.
1: It's so like, no, the, uh, wanted, what was his wanted, name, the Peter Falks thing in Colombo? Oh, just one more thing. <laughs> Look who I Why had. How did it. you murder it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Brian, come on over here. <laughs> yeah. I know. have
1: Brian Burke here with me. Though.
0: <laughs> Welcome, Howard Berger. Now, oh, yeah. um, I wanted to ask you about sort of the future of, uh, of, of hockey. Um, uh, I, I've spoken with, <clears throat> you know, a number of different uh, people in hockey, whether they be, you know, Bob McKenzie or, or Harna Ryan Singh or James Duthie and so on and so forth. Um, especially with, and I I guess, you know, me living in Toronto, I'm sort of, you know, Toronto-centric, right? Um, The the Raptors winning a championship two seasons ago, um, changing demographics within Toronto, if not Canada, um, technology where kids uh, have so many places to go for entertainment, so many choices of of what they do in terms of sports. Um, What what are your thoughts on, I guess, the future of hockey in Canada?
1: I'm obviously partial in this. I don't think that basketball has got a great future ahead of it with the fans. The the numbers are dropping exponentially. It's a game that is very similar day in day out you watch basketball highlights there's the one where the guy shoots from the next area code and it swishes (laughs) there's one where a guy runs and throws it up the other one slams it down and there's one where a guy runs through like a fullback and slams it down and hangs from the rim and that's pretty well it you can change the uniform colors change the highlights change the final score but basically every time you watch a sports show and see basketball highlights that's what you see now, and baseball now has just become so slow. It's not going to grab the younger generation either. And and I don't know how you can speed baseball up. It's a subject that they avoid and the use of time clocks and that I don't think is going to work. The NFL is going to survive because it's betting. The NFL doesn't like to admit it, but it is totally based on betting. And you can have some awfully boring NFL games, but there'll be a lot of people watching them. The spread could be 10 and a half and it's nine and they're going one way. There's no reason in the world to be watching these games in many <laughs> cases, unless you've got money on them. And you know, I, I enjoy the NFL, I love it. And I put very small amounts of money, like $5 or five euros if I'm in Malta or whatever. But, the, uh, but I do bet on them, small amounts and I, it makes the game interesting and you can make any game interesting that way. And as for hockey, I think the speed will be its mm-hmm. salvation. Today's kids, they want to watch the the things on on their games and the stuff's flying around and banging and everything. And, and that's really what hockey is becoming. Interesting. The problem for hockey might have to do with the expense involved. And mm-hmm. You want to be a high-level player and play a high level in a city like Toronto. Well, what's it cost a parent? $50,000 these days? to all the, the leagues and the equipment and the travel and all this sort of stuff. And uh, so you wonder. But on the other hand, hockey is becoming increasingly popular. It has a very solid base in Europe. So it's going to have a lot of places to draw from. We may see a change in hockey in the sense that the great stars may no longer be Canadian. And in many cases, that's already happened. They you bring in these people from Russia and the Czechs Norway, uh, Finns, Swedes. uh, It's becoming more of a world game, and it is very much patterned on soccer, which is the world's most popular game. And really, there isn't an awful lot of difference. You've got a field that's roughly the same shape, a bit of difference in length and width, but it's is you know, long and narrow, a goal at each end. The idea is to propel a certain object down and put it in the other goal, and stop the other people from doing it and hockey is just a hell of a lot faster than soccer but the people who like soccer in europe and that if given exposure to hockey probably like it so i think like everything else we're seeing in the world today there will be changes and changes in hockey and all the other sports but i think that hockey in the in the long run will survive and and will hold its own and uh, who knows? It's uh, you know, it's never a good thing really to guess. You know,
0: like,
1: <laughs> you know, if you want to make God laugh, predict your future. You know, that's
0: true. Al, this has been a fun chat uh, yeah, for
1: myself. Fun for hope, me too. I hope, you thank it. I, hope you. I didn't ramble too much. No, that that is
0: fine. The book is Hockey's Hot Stove: The Untold Stories of the Original Insiders. Would make a great stocking stuffer. Six love, of them. So, yeah, I think six of them. Would make
1: a big talking You know, you get a six pack of those books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Al Strachan, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Awesome.